Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. It's my pleasure today to introduce you to Harley Lippman. Um, he is a, uh, a Columbia University's graduate school, he sits on the board, I should say, of Columbia University's Graduate School of International and Public Affairs. He's also on Yale University's um, um, board of, of School of Management, the business school. The business school, board of the business school. Um, and is also executive committee member on uh, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And um, uh, first off, uh, Harley, thank you so much for doing this today. Um, it's great to talk to you about what's going on, not just in uh, the context of uh, the war uh, in Gaza, and we can talk a little bit about that if you like, but really uh, acutely more what's happening here in the United States. And I'll, I'll frame this for you in, in terms of my experience. Um, and I've been saying this now for two months. I was extremely disturbed to go to bed in America 2023 on October 7th and wake up on October 8th in something that felt more like 1933 Nuremberg. And I mean, I know it's not every college campus. By the way, can I can I jump in and make a correction? Yeah. Yes. I, I think it's not 1933 Nuremberg, but to wake up to something like 1944 Holocaust. Yeah, even better put, even better put. And I'm glad that you put it that way. I, I mean, I'm stunned, I'm shocked. I'm, I, 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 I knew things were bad, <laughs> okay? I had no idea they were this bad. And you know, it's been a very long time since I've been on a college campus other than to just walk around on one. Um, so I had no idea it was as bad as it was, even though we've you know routinely criticized um the the politics and the and and the policies of academia. Uh, I didn't have a front row seat to this. You clearly did. Were you as shocked as I was, or or did you see this coming? Uh I I would be a smart man if I saw it coming. I wish I could say that. But truth be told, I think like you, um, everybody's in shock. I, I would be surprised of anyone that actually saw it coming. Um, I, I think, and, and going back to October 7th, I think I could say certainly for the Jewish people and for others, other people who are just being human beings, we're all traumatized badly. Yeah what happened because you know and i want to say something about october 7th because you know it's important to to explain what that means to to your listeners and viewers people may not grasp it as as well as uh, one ought to and what i mean by that is that per person you can make a case it's actually even worse than the holocaust and yes. i'm not trying to, and i'm not trying to minimize the holocaust i'm not exaggerating I'm not trivializing that the suffering of people in the Holocaust. The Holocaust was the incarnation of evil. But even during the Holocaust, two things made it distinctive that was different than what Hamas did on October 7th. One is the Nazis went, went really out of their way to hide their crimes because they knew it was wrong and they were ashamed by it, even though they were committed to it. Where Hamas brought GoPro cameras to put it on their website and, and to show the cruelty and the suffering of what they put on innocent people. Right. That's what, And the second is the fact that they went out of their way, not only to kill people who just happened to be Jewish and for no crime other than they're Jewish, but they went to inflict as much pain as possible and torture them before they died. I mean, literally would take an 82 year old grandmother 
make her get on FaceTime with her family, and then torture her in front of her family. I mean, when you're traumatized, you kind of have PTSD. People don't talk about it that much now. It'll come out in documentaries and in further articles. But it was extraordinary of the level of cruelty that went on. I mean, it's one thing to, uh, it, it's such a shock because one, you shouldn't kill civilians anyway. I like to say that if we stand for anything as a civilization, it's that whatever your grievance, you can't deliberately murder innocent people, which are children, women, elderly, non-combatants. You, you can't, everybody has grievances. Right. We would be reduced to um, chaos and wars and murder. The whole world would collapse if everybody acted out their grievances in a violent way. That's why you have a civilization with police and courts to manage these grievances. So I think that I think that's a huge aspect. So I'll pause there because you may have something else you may want to say or ask it. No, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm going to hear from you, and so I appreciate you know what you're saying there. And you know, we're talking about in terms of you know comparing and, and with obvious lots of caveats here. And what I would and I completely agree with you is that you know the Germans actually documented their atrocities, but really only internally. They were trying very hard to keep that shielded from. The general public. Now, there's been lots of debate over whether the general public was in favor of it, and there's been some very interesting scholarship along those lines. But, but this is clearly an entirely different approach. Those GoPro videos that you're talking about, they were intended to first off humiliate uh, the Israelis who were being victimized by them, but also to, as a morale builder back in Gaza and probably the West Bank as well, which reflects on what the situation there is and how those people have been radicalized by Hamas and, and other you know, entities, Iran being you know, certainly chief among those. And so it is a different sort of thing. And that's the reason, Harley, that I find it so... Um, uh, and I, it, I struggle for even the right word for this, just incomprehensible how anybody could embrace that right. on October 8th or any time after that. I mean, we were already starting to see some of the videos on October 8th uh, because they were because they were on social media. And yet, across college, in college campuses across the country, you had people marching in support of Hamas. You had people marching uh, to call for the destruction of Israel. Uh, you know, from the river to the sea means something very clear and very specific, no matter what college administrators want to try to say afterwards. And I'm, it was stunning to me how, how much people align themselves with the monsters in this particular case. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And uh, it is what I'd like to say to that. I think one, the good news is that uh, we have the truth on our side, that if the truth yes. comes out, say the truth will set you free. It goes back to the history of anti-Semitism. Christian Europe would say that Jews took blood from Christian children. They never did. No. So when, when you know, the proof and truth of that comes out, it makes it hard to be anti-Semitic. But I think what happened here, everybody's in such shock. And I think I, I can address it in a few ways. One is that we've all engaged in wishful thinking in the sense that we thought 
that with the Holocaust, it ended anti-Semitism by and large. Not that there's some bad pockets that come up and we usually would associate it with right-wing militias like the Ku Klux Klan or organizations like that. That's what a lot of people focus on. But it has been embraced by the liberal left, actually, who embrace Hamas. And I want to focus on that for a moment, Hamas. So let's think of the Palestinian people, because a lot of people are framing this as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? So if we accept that, which is fair, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, let's think from the Palestinian point of view, what do the Palestinians want? I believe they want a nation of their own, right? I think most people would say that. Right. So let's look at that. So let's look at who supports the aspirations of the Palestinians. Hamas doesn't want a Palestinian nation. They made it very clear. They want a caliphate. Israel, on the other hand, when it was created, accepted a Palestinian nation. They didn't call it Palestine then. They called it an Arab country. It encompassed what we now know as the West Bank and Gaza. And guess what happened? The Arab world took it away from the Palestinians. Egypt took Gaza illegally, and Jordan took the West Bank and annexed it. And no nation in the world accepted it, except for England and Pakistan, that, that acknowledged Jordan's right to annex the West Bank. So why I'm saying that is the Arab countries took away the dreams of the Palestinians by seizing their land to keep it for themselves. So let's start with that. Not the Jews and not Israelis. Israelis, Israel accepted two nations. And the way that was done was the UN did it where, where mostly Jews live, that'll be Israel, and where mostly the Arabs, Palestinians live, that'll be an Arab country. And, and even when that was done, David Ben-Gurion, who's the founder of, of Israel and, and its first uh, uh, prime minister, uh, all his direct reports told him not to accept it, saying, what kind of nation is this? You ever saw it on the map? It's like oh yeah, it's a nation, mine, yeah. A little pencil. But Ben Gurion said, you know, in life, you, when you go for all and nothing, you tend to get nothing. So we'll take a compromise, and I think that's the difference: is that Jews and Israelis were reasonable, compromised, and that's why they got a nation. The Arab world, the Palestinians, are not reasonable and did not compromise, and they don't have a Palestinian nation. And I think that's important to start with. And then secondarily, let's look at what has happened since then. Israel has offered to work on and accept a Palestinian nation. They offered it to Arafat twice, right? right. And Omer, who took over after Ehud Barak, he also. So three times Israel offered the Palestinians have a nation, which made up between 94 and 97 percent of the West Bank. I think pretty good deal and even East Jerusalem. And yet the Palestinians and the Arab world rejected it. So who is responsible for the Palestinians not having a nation? It's themselves, the Palestinians, and the Arab world, not Israel. And by the way, it's not in Israel's interest to be in the West Bank or to be in Gaza. There's nothing good that could come of it for Israel. Why do they want to be there? They're viewed as a pariah in the world. It causes dissension in Israel as Half the population demonstrates against it. Um, it soaks up a lot of Israeli resources. Um, they get casualties by soldiers being killed. Uh, there's just nothing good for Israel to control that land. So they're only doing it because it's a it, it, they, they're trying to keep terrorists from entering Israel. 
and they're waiting for an opportunity to have the world accept the Jewish nation. I don't remember the number, but I think there are 21 Arab nations or something like that. And there's only one little Israel. So right. we're looking for the world to accept, you know, I mean, think about it. 75 years later, Israel still has to struggle for its right to exist. I don't any nation yeah. in the world or in the history of the world that was true, you know, except for ancient times, perhaps. But other than that, I don't know any nation that has that. So, um, I, so I think it, so. It's important to point out that, as I just said, to summarize, Israel has willingly, happily went to work on accepting a Palestinian nation, and it was the Palestinian people and the Arab world that have rejected it. And Hamas does not want one. So they are not looking out for the interests of the Palestinian people. Then next, secondarily, Hamas doesn't care about the Palestinian people. Why is it that they don't have one air raid shelter in Gaza? Not one. They don't care about the people. The tunnels, it's hundreds of miles of tunnels. Do you know how sophisticated that is? Costing billions of dollars. Indeed. And they spend that money for education, for health care for the safety and security of the Palestinians? No, they spent that money building these tunnels for Hamas fighters. And then on television in Moscow, when they said to the leadership of Hamas, well, what about the Palestinians in Gaza? What about protecting them in the tunnels? Hamas leaders said, oh no, the tunnels are for our fighters. So they don't care about the death of the Palestinians. In fact, they want that to happen because they're exploiting the Palestinian people so they could use them to say, look how bad Israel is and look what they did. And, you know, of course it's terrible that Palestinian civilians, innocent civilians are, are dying when Israel is bombing them. That is terrible. Who can like innocent civilians being killed? What good could come out of that? Israel doesn't want that or like that. But when you use a hospital, for example, to launch rockets into a home in Israel, it loses its protected status. Under Absolutely. The and the people who have to take responsibility for that is Hamas, but people just blame Israel. So we have a new, so Ed, we have a new fascism now, it, it, you know, like Hitler. And I think the word is we should say Hamas equals fascist and, and Nazis, and that's what they are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw any of the videos, but they're the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. I've Did seen a little it? bit of I've seen a little bit of them. They're not widely released. Um, you know, there were some that were coming out in the in the immediate days uh, after 10-7. Uh, and I saw those. And uh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the I think there's a 48 minute compilation that um, uh, Israeli consulates are setting up for specific viewings. I haven't seen that. And it's not widely released. And there's really good reasons for it not to be widely released. Well, there's it should be. I want to tell you, there's one in particular that came out right away that just spoke for itself. I mean, I, I need to go into what happened because people have to understand Absolutely. how extraordinary what happened is. You know, even pogroms that occurred in Eastern Europe, pogroms were when non-Jews, typically Cossacks in Russia, would go into a Jewish village and rape and murder. And, and that's what they would do. They would just torture and kill Jews. But the level of what Hamas did was greater. And let, let me just share what that means. One, they went to a peace music festival. It yes. was a peace festival, music festival, with young kids dancing and just murdered them and gang-raped women, mutilated their genitals and breasts and played with it. I mean, really, 
were laughing as they gang raped the women, as women would scream, please kill me, I'm dead anyway, uh, you know, um, they would torture these women and and uh, and, and uh, such cruelty, focusing on genitalia. They would put nails in women's genitalia. I mean, just unspeakable cruelty. And, you know, uh, you know, decapitating babies, raping girls in the homes in front of the parents. Rarely did that. What, what does that happen? He wouldn't rape is horrible beyond belief. But even where does that happen where it's done in front of the parents? Where they're made to watch. I mean, right. just to show you that this wasn't just to kill Jews. This was designed to humiliate them, uh, inflict as much pain as possible. And what nation in the world would have that happen to them and not go to war? This is how you know it's anti-Semitism. I want and I want to address that for a quick minute. Yep. Think of the fact that in let's just think of the Arab world for a moment. In Syria. Assad, the head of, of Syria, slaughtered over 600,000 Sunni Muslims, where he leads a group led by the group called the Alawis. Alawis, they're an offshoot of the Shias of Iran. And when they went into a Sunni village in Syria, they wouldn't just rape the women, they would rape the men. Where were the demonstrations against that? There weren't. Where were they? And let's just take the United States. When we took out ISIS in Mosul, tens of thousands of civilians were killed in the bombings there. Where were the demonstrations against that? So why this is important to point out is, is it that Jews are using anti-Semitism in a manipulative way? Is it that Jews are using it to deflect criticism? Is it that they're exaggerating anti-Semitism, that it's not there? That's a fair question. Well, here's the answer. None of the above. Right. Because it's a double standard. This is how you know it's anti-Semitism. Here, all these people are demonstrating against Israel who are doing nothing but defending themselves. It's not their fault that Hamas built tunnels underneath these buildings. But Israel, and the Geneva Convention does require Israel to give adequate notice and do things of that nature. And they're doing that. They're sending millions of robocalls, telling people to evacuate the building which puts their own soldiers at greater risk because the Hamas fighters evacuate with their weapons too. Um, and then they're able to kill more Israelis the next right. day. So I think Israel's doing everything possible, but they don't want to expose, they don't want to, you know, they have to bomb because otherwise they expose their soldiers um, to horrendous casualties. You know, um, the Iraqi army lost 10,000 people taking Mosul. Israel doesn't want to lose 10,000 soldiers. Uh, you know, they, they, so I, I think that these, these truths need, need to come out. And I think that's, what's really important. And then let's go to the hearings in front of the, with the college professors. Because... Before we go to the, before we go to the hearings, I just want to, I want to address one thing really quickly here, because I do want to get to the hearings, but I want to focus on the war aspect of this, because this is something that I've been talking about a lot. We're still hearing from American media and from the UN, well, the UN is useless anyway, but we're hearing it from the UN that collective punishment on the Palestinians is illegitimate. And I mean, this is not collective punishment. Hamas was the government of, uh, was the popularly elected government of Gaza until, of course, Hamas started slaughtering Fatah and, and seized all power through force of arms. 
But they were the government. They were the recognized government of Gaza, and they committed an act of war. They were the elected government. They were elected. They were elected. They were elected in 2006. And it was the last elections that they had, but they were elected. I mean, it's just as legitimate as Abbas uh, being the um, uh, being the president of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, uh, who only also only had one election. But they committed an act of war. The government of Gaza committed an act of war against Israel. This is not collective, in my mind, and I just want you to address this. This is not collective punishment. This is war. And when you start wars, this is what happens to you. And my argument has been for the last 17 years that the pricing signals for starting wars have been masked and, and suppressed because everybody gets involved and tries to get it shut down before the Palestinians in Gaza, especially, uh, don't have to pay a price for starting wars. And this is what should have been happening all along, because this is the only way that you disincentivize the starting of wars is to make people feel the actual cost of starting a war. And so the idea that this is collective punishment to me is absurd. I, I, I just want to, Harley, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that just a little bit. I know I, I, I agree. It's, it's sad and, and uh, frustrating, but yeah, I mean, again, Hamas did this themselves. It's not collective punishment. Israel is going after Hamas, but they are using civilians. In fact, in history of warfare, it's quite uncanny that usually armies are there to protect the civilians of a nation, but they but they they're using not against the consent of the people. They're using the armies to protect the military uh, in Gaza, which is quite 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 unique and disturbing. And I think that. I'll give you another example that will illustrate, you know, the why it's a double standard here. Let's take World War II. The United States was surprised at Pearl Harbor, like Israel was surprised on October 7th. And yet Israel, yet the United States was attacked in Asia, um, very far away from the mainland, thousands of miles away from the United States. And it was a military base that was attacked. And the United States bombed Japan basically back into the Stone Age. I mean, a one night killed 80,000 people in Tokyo with firebombs. And yet, again, now, why do I bring that out is Japan went to war with the United States. And so why is it that, let's take Japan, 80 years later, four generations later, the Japanese have no appetite for war whatsoever. They were considered, like Germany, arguably the most militant warlike nations in the history of the planet. And yet, these in the last 80 years, not one bit of interest in getting involved in any war. Why? Because they were totally and utterly defeated. And that's how you have closure. So I think that what Israel is doing in Gaza is to have closure with the conflict. And when you get people to say, I give up, then you have closure. If you do it partially, the, the, the conflict festers and only gets worse. A great example is Germany in World War I. Germany was defeated in World War I, but they didn't feel defeated. And so 20 years later, they had the appetite to go to war again. What has to happen in warfare, which is harder in, the, in the, these days, is to totally defeat your enemy so you do have closure. And I think that's the model is to look at World War II. And in World War II, the United States and Britain not only bombed uh, uh, civilian sites, but they did it intentionally. Israel is not. 
they did intentionally to weaken the morale of those countries. So again, I think the Palestinian people have to own up and take responsibility like the Germans had to own up and take responsibility for electing Hitler. The Palestinians have to own up and take responsibilities for electing Hamas. Yeah, Harley, I'm glad you brought up Pearl Harbor because I actually wrote about that yesterday on Pearl Harbor Day. It just... You were not when I said Pearl Harbor. You were, yeah, December 7th, right? Yeah, I wrote a whole wrote a whole post about the parallels there. And um, so, you know, Great minds think alike, I guess, and that's great. Uh, so I, I'll give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an interesting anecdote that you may or may not know about Pearl Harbor. That if you don't know, I think you'll find fascinating, but you may know it. Rose, I read a book on about Roosevelt about this. Roosevelt was so shocked by Pearl Harbor, he gathered with his military commanders, and he thought the Japanese would be on the west coast. And his military commanders said we may only be able to stop them by Chicago, but we will stop them by then. Can you imagine? Oh my goodness, yeah. Which, no, which I hadn't heard shows, that. Yeah, sorry. I hadn't heard that anecdote. No, you're right. I, that's that's news to me. So yeah. So it just shows, I mean, again, you know, all these conspiracy theories that he let it happen. He didn't let it, you know, people miss intelligence signals and people get complacent and they underestimate the enemy and Hold them and hold the enemy in contempt, which is violating basic rules of warfare, and this is what you know gets in the way of being prepared. And Israel will have to have its day of reckoning with why it it, it wasn't prepared. I'll give you a statement on that. So I'm critical about on Israel on that. You know, Israel dropped the ball. Why? I think due due to arrogance. You know, when when you think you're smarter than the enemy, and you you know you, and you underestimate your enemy and you think you're better and bigger and stronger, you get a complacency where uh, which takes place. It's psychological. It's like, why did the French army lose so quickly in World War II? They were the largest army in Europe. You know, they had more tanks than the Germans did, but there was this defeatist, it's a mentality. So uh, anyway, that's I'll, I'll just uh, stop with that and, and get back to you. And if you want to get to the sure. college or not. Well, you know, I, I think there's a good segue here <laughs> because I think I think in what we saw, Harley, in in the um, in the testimony was you had three people who thought that they were the smartest people in the room and had contempt really for everybody else who was in the room and discovered much to their dismay and probably not until afterwards that they, in fact, were probably the dumbest people in the room. And well, um, well and, said. <laughs> I mean. Everything that you just said, and this is obviously quite a reductio because you know these people are running universities, they're not running countries. But I, I'd say it's the same dynamic. They walked in there thinking that they own the place, thinking that there's no, you know, nobody here is my equal, and ended up getting depanced in front of a national audience to such an extent that now that you've got outrage really across the political spectrum. You had Josh Shapiro, for instance, stand up. Uh, and and you know, governor of California, governor of the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, governor of the state of Pennsylvania, all but demand uh, McGill's firing. He he stopped yeah. because he says it's not my role. But right. it's pretty clear what he wanted. John Fetterman, also from Pennsylvania, who right. has been actually he's not my cup of tea, but he's been actually a, a, a small. I surprisingly, so. I'm very surprisingly so. I agree with you. Yeah, uh, you got. Um, Doug Emhoff last night, 
um, you know, Kamala Harris's husband. Again, not necessarily somebody I'm going to cheer on, but he got up last night and said there is no context involved here. Well, let's go. I mean, I think there are right. I, I think there are two dynamics here. The people who watched it, and I encourage everyone who hasn't done it, you could Google it, see it easily. Watch the interview. It's it's pretty shocking. So one is yes that they say it's a matter when it says is the genocide of Jews appropriate and acceptable standards of behavior and speech on these college campuses. And their answer should have been, it's not appropriate, acceptable to anyone. And again, I'm going to prove to you why it's anti-Semitism. Here's the proof, Ed, right away. Let's reverse it. Let's say it was KKK dressed in their hoods, put in white clothing, burning cross, and with a sign saying genocide to blacks. You tell me how acceptable that would be on those college campuses. It would not be, correctly so. Right. It would not be. So why is it acceptable to have it about Jews to have genocide? That's how you know it's anti-Semitism, the double standard. You know, a, a one standard for one group of people and a different standard for Jews. Yep. So you know it's anti-Semitism. So one, there is no context. If you're saying genocide of certain people, that should be reprehensible and unacceptable in any place, but especially in America's universities. And the fact that they couldn't condemn that unequivocally is deeply, deeply disturbing that they kept on nuancing it. Well, it's a matter of context. You can contextualize terror and murder and hatred, period. Yep. That's something, that's what happens with intellectuals. They over-intellectualize it. Well, it's the context. But the second thing that struck me, that I don't know if you saw this, was the disdain that they had for Congress. Yes. With smirk, their smiles, you know, their their arrogance, you know, that, you know, they, they think they're smarter and better than everyone, you know, trying to out-intellectualize, you know, the American people. It was uh, shameful to see the way they behaved. And you would think they'd be disturbed that they're, that Jewish students are frightened on their campus that have been the victims of anti-Semitism, they didn't focus on that. They focused on contextualizing these words. And, you know, and they say, provided it doesn't turn into violence or harassment, well, what else would it turn into at some point? What do you think? Words matter. It always starts with words. doesn't end with words. You know, and it's, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on there too, because these are, I mean, these are the same institutions that claim that misgendering is actual violence, right? That the use of wrong pronouns is actual violence, right? But the, but when it comes to mobs marching across campus, cheering on genocide against the Jews, that somehow is suddenly they want to hide behind the First Amendment. And if they had been First Amendment stalwarts all along, there might be an argument for that, but they're not. <laughs> right. And, and, and you say, well, that's how you know it's anti-Semitism. And I think you're right about that. But I mean, it's also, to me, uh, a statement of the fact that, that insti those institutions, those three institutions and, and others like them, tacitly in, are endorsing that because they're not enforcing speech codes that they would impose on conservative points of view or libertarian points of view or religious points of view. Um, they impose all sorts of 
codes and you know suppression on those points of view. But this point of view, they let run rampant across the campus. And I'm sorry, there is some factor there in that sequence that allows people to presume that there is a tacit endorsement of that because the university isn't saying anything about that speech, whereas they will take action against other forms of speech. And that's where you get into problems when you start having speech codes. Those, those, those presidents may be very nice people individually, but they're, they don't have moral clarity. They're not the leaders for the times that we need. That's the problem. You know, you need to speak up about this. This is, this is how it starts. As I said, words matter. And Jews are the canary in the coal mine. It says yeah. a lot about the health of a society. It starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. So if you don't stop this intolerance and hatred now, it, it'll extend to other groups and other people. But, you know, th there's another thing that's that's at work here, which, you know, it affects so many areas, what, what took place on October 7th. The other one is the notion that uh, let's go to the heart of the Arab-Israeli conflict. You know, the notion that Jews took the land from the Palestinians and are colonists of sorts. It's quite extraordinary, but the reality is completely different. One is that I can't think of any nation at the UN that was not created through sword and fire, meaning violence right. and wars, except for Israel. Israel was built on the legal purchase of land. All the land, Israel didn't go and kick out anybody or squat. They bought land legally from people there. That's what they did. That's what people, anybody owns a home. Somebody had been there 100 years, 200 years before, maybe 300 years before. But if you buy a land, anyway, you'd be a hypocrite if you bought land and then you thought, oh, well, only in Israel, if they bought, if they bought land from someone, they should give it back or it's not theirs. But if you bought land, in the United States. So let's let's say your audience are mostly Americans. I would say this to Americans, any land that you have here in the United States was owned by American Indians before you. And I don't think it's really disputed the United States did kick out and slaughter the Indians. Yeah. So if you accept the notion, let's and by the way, Israelis are the original American Indians, not the Palestinians. But if you want to say, for argument's sake, the Palestinians are the equivalent of the American Indians. Well, then you would accept that people could come and rape you in your home and murder you and torture you if you accept what Hamas did to Israelis. And what made this so tragic and sad is that the Israelis they killed on the border were largely the, the group of people within Israeli society who were the most sympathetic to the Palestinians. There was a woman named Miriam Silverman who would go to Gaza and take patients who had cancer to Israeli hospitals to be treated and brought them back to Gaza for no money. She did this just out of kindness. She was murdered on October 7th, brutally. And the list goes on. I mean, these are kibbutzes. These are people who are left of center, who are the most sympathetic, which shows that they are not interested in promoting peace between Israelis and Palestinians. No. That's the crucial, that's the crucial thing. Uh, they are not, you know, they are they are interested in slaughter. And I think the way to understand the conflict now is really to look back at history. I am a student of history. And this just shows that nothing, you know, we have this idea that history is like in the past, the black and white images of the Holocaust 
Schindler's List is kind of something in the past and would never happen today or in the future. We have this naivete and illusion. It's just kind of crazy, right? right. I think society, we all kind of embrace that because we all never thought it would happen. But if you look at it in the context of history, this is just, you know, it, it the same feelings that existed 75 years ago when Israel was created exist now. And then the other thing I want to say, going back to the Arab-Israeli conflict, so Mark Twain and Herman Melville, two American novelists uh, who visited the Holy Land, described it as really empty. Some religious Jews, some Bedouins, very inhospitable land, swamps with malaria, just not, not very populated. I'm, I'm saying that for a reason, to explain that there weren't many people there. Then comes the Zionist movement, which says that Jews are never going to be accepted as equals in Europe, and they're going to be persecuted and murdered. So we need a place of our own. Some people say, why not Argentina? Why not Sinai? Why not Uganda? Well, Jews pray every year, many times a year. If I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right arm wither at its side. Because we've been praying all the time after we've been kicked out. Jews were kicked out of Israel in the year 70 AD to return. So Jews bought land and created vast enterprises and factories, which became a job magnet in the Arab world. So about 200,000 Jews from the Zionist movement went to Israel at the turn of the last century, mm -hmm. which attracted about 300,000 Arabs from neighboring countries to come work in Israel because they were paying much higher wages than in the Arab world, which was really suffering from unemployment and um, terrible uh, economic decay in those Arab countries. They were really in bad shape then. Well, so especially they, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, too. I mean, this, this is in the background. The Ottoman Empire is collapsing. The, the Turks were running it, and the Arabs were not, you know, the Arabs were participating in it, but they weren't running it. And so right. as this is collapsing, their economies are collapsing as well, yeah. Right. And if you look at Jordan and Iraq, completely creations of British colonialism. Nobody disputes that. Nobody demonstrates against that. Nobody says anything about that colonialism. But Israel, and I'll say another thing about Israel, there are no people in the place of the planet, nobody, that could say what Israel could say, which is that from 3,000 years ago, there's only one place in the world where people who lived there 3,000 years ago live there today that speak the same language, worship the same God, and live in the same country, but the Jewish people in Israel. So anybody has a right to that land, be hard to make a case of someone that's, that doesn't have a stronger case as the Jews in Israel. So then, so that created a, a job opportunities. And th there's been articles about it. The, the French um, uh, counselor official in Syria, because it was then the French got Syria and Lebanon after the Ottoman Empire fell, the British won, along with their French allies, they carved up the Middle East. And they would say, the French consul general in Syria and say, Whole villages would empty out and go into Israel. The number two guy in Hamas says, if you scratch any Palestinian, you'll find an Egyptian or a Saudi. And Yasser Arafat was born in Egypt. So just to give you an idea, so it's not this indigenous people that have been living there for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden these Jews come along and kick them out. That's not the right. case. And then lastly, let's talk about the displacement of these Palestinians, 47, 48. Well, so Israel says, we'll accept the plan. We'll, we'll take our little country. And then five Arab armies go to invade it to, to throw them in the sea by, by their own words. They barely survived. They lost 2% of their population. 
which was equivalent of us losing 2 million people in Vietnam when we lost 50,000. Right. So why I'm saying that is why, what created Palestinian refugees? Well, three things. One is the Arab world, and this is proven with great evidence on radio and in newspapers told Palestinian people to get out of their way. They're going to come in and murder the Jews, throw them into the sea, and destroy the notion of a Jewish nation in that part of the world. So that was reason one. Reason two was that if you're a mother and you have daughters and you see a Syrian army approaching and the Iraqi army approaching with 18-year-old boys in it, you're going to get out of the way. So you're going to leave for the second reason. Distant third reason is if Israel sees the Syrian army coming and the Iraqi army coming, and they say, boy, we're going to get slaughtered unless we take the high ground and take that Arab village, they'll go to that village and say to people, you got to leave. They didn't think they were kicking them out forever. They, that was not their intention or even the thought process. They just said, we're in a war and we need to take this village because otherwise we're going to get wiped out by the Syrian or Iraqi army, whichever army is advancing. That, right. That's how this happened. Um, but... But the UN issued a report then saying that of all the refugee problems in the world, including World War II, where there were tens of millions of refugees, the most solvable was the Palestinian one. Because why? They said ample land, same religion, same language, easily could be absorbed. The Arab world didn't absorb them. Why? Again, let's use them so that we can blame everything on Israel and say Israel is responsible for this. Even today, just to show you the double standard of anti-Semitism, you're a Palestinian in Lebanon, you can't work. They will not let you have a job in Lebanon. They want to keep it for their Shia population. They don't want competition from Palestinians. That's why they're in refugee camps today. And Lebanon, and if you're Lebanese, it's a felony if you have any contact with an Israeli for any reason. A felony. Yep. So nobody talks about this racism and discrimination against Palestinians and against Israelis from Lebanon. Nobody demonstrates against this, but this goes on. So, uh, you know, again, it just points to the double standard and the fact that Israel is a nation trying to exist. It's in a tough place. You know, they're, they're surrounded by people and countries that want to destroy them. And given all that, I think they've, they've done well. And, you know, we, we have to deal with something that has always been around, will always be around. It never went away in 1945, the Holocaust. It went into hibernation in some sense. Yeah. And now we're, we're, we're seeing it resurrected. And it's, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things where you realize that uh, you never reach the end of history to, uh, to quote a little unfairly, Francis Fukuyama, but, um, but instead you have to live with history. And we're out of time, but... Harley Lippman, I want to thank you so much for a great conversation here today. I hope that we can do this again as things unfold and talk about some of the aspects of how we move on from here. But I think that this is a great first conversation as to how we got here in the first place. And I thank you so much. Is there any website or any anything that you would like to promote here at the end so that people know where they can find you? I mean, if they want to, they can look at my website, which is harleylipman.com. Lippman is L-I-P-P as in Peter, M-A-N. Harley is like the motorcycle, H-A-R-L-E-Y. <laughs> so harleylipman.com. So go check that out. Thanks again, Harley Lippman. And I look forward to talking with you again. My pleasure. Same here, Ed. Thank you. <laughs>